0: Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Sanciere Perez, co-founder of Quala. In this episode, Sanciere explains what exactly is frontline intelligence and how Quala helps customer success practitioners to be seen as customer intelligence leaders that help drive growth within an organization. We also discussed what you need to look out for when building a customer success team from the get-go, why Quala's product marketing team strategically comes from sales and customer experience, and finally, she shares why their highly engaged customers at Promobox churned. And here's today's episode.
1: Hey, Sun C.R.A., how's it going? It's going. Well, thank you so much for having me today.
0: It's a pleasure. For the listeners, Sun C.R.A. is the co-founder of Quala, the only customer success platform powered by frontline intelligence. Quala uniquely combines intelligence from frontline teams with customer data for better workflows. Sun C.R.A. started out a career in marketing at CCA Global Partners before founding Promobox. San Sierra is also an investor and advisor and serves as a mentor in residence at Techstars. So my first question for you is, what is frontline intelligence?
1: That's a great question. So how we define frontline intelligence is anyone in the field interacting with customers day in and day out. Most of our customers are customer success teams. I myself, of course, have been in customer success for the last 12 years. But really, it's anyone. If you're a product manager talking to customers, you're on the front line. If you're in support, you're on the front line. So that's how we look at it. But primarily, we are working with customer success teams.
0: Cool. And talk us through a little bit about like what you currently do at Quala. What is unique about the offering? Obviously, I know like on the show, we've interviewed A lot of different people all serving the customer success space and different tools and services. So uh, what is it that you do and uh, how are you unique?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking. So here at Koala, we believe that customer success teams are on the front lines interacting with customers day in and day. We believe that they're the learning engine for scaling successful B2B SaaS companies. And we found the most successful companies have customer success teams um, that are in the trenches and that are accurately able to describe what they're seeing as a result of those interactions in a way that's distillable for leadership so they can make sound strategic decisions based on those interactions. So we see our mission as promoting CS within the org as customer intelligence experts so that they can help drive company strategy. And we do that in a really unique way. I'm happy to share a little bit more, but that's at is essence what we're up to here at Koala.
0: Cool. Maybe give us a little bit more detail as well. Like how are you doing that specifically?
1: Sure. So the Spidey senses that customer success teams um, might have around critical integration points that will help retain a certain set of customers or maybe a pricing update that will help grow another set of customers. We essentially provide the data to back all of that up. So it's shared as fact-based and not necessarily as opinion And we do this by pulling in call details, notes, emails, chats, et cetera, into one data stream. Then customer success teams or leadership can mine that data stream for key areas of interest. Some questions that some of our customers ask Koala are, which of our customers are talking about our competitors? Which competitors? Should we integrate with Gong or Chorus? Are customers having issues with our onboarding experience overall? We essentially pull in all of the data that I mentioned so that these teams can create visualization dashboards around that data and then make sound recommendations. So again, think less opinions, more fact-based and it all realized or came to realization when us as serial founders, my co-founder and I got together and realized that as a company grows, the more its leaders become disconnected from the front line from those having conversations with customers day in and day out, the more it's harder to keep your ear to the ground and it's difficult to leverage that really important intelligence that is the competitive edge that'll help you build a successful company. So we built a mechanism essentially that allows our customers to understand not only how their customers are using their products, but how they feel about how they're using their products.
0: Very cool. Yeah, I think it's super important. I was trying to actually remember, this is one of the, from Reforge, if you're familiar with the the courses and stuff, one of the, on the retention course, I can't remember what it's called, but it's the idea that with founders, as you mentioned, like as the product and the company evolves and grows, like you have this inherent bias as a founder to lean back on what you knew the customers were doing at that certain point in time and in your head, when in actual fact, like it can be further from the truth. And you've meandered so far off from where you originally were. that. Your original insights are pretty much useless at some point. So if you're not really like um, either yourself being super close to the customer, you need to be like relying on your team to make sure that they're doing it. But I think as a founder, personally, my bias towards this. You should always be doing it. You know? That's a
1: good point. We can get so myopic in our experiences. And one of my favorite quotes is in the mind of the beginner, the possibilities are endless and in the mind of the expert, they're few. So as we build our company, more and more, the years and years go by, we see ourselves as experts, we understand what we're building, we have the vision, we understand our customers, um, and we start to see a narrowed pathway and that sort of focus can be incredibly powerful when you don't have a lot of resources at your disposal and not a lot of time Focus is, is comes at a premium. It's paramount. Um, but the opposite of that, it, it is a double edged sword where um, you see confirmation bias and you're just essentially seeing the customer base is what you believe it should be. I have been proven so many times by Koala, our own product, when I feel like I know we should do this thing. And then I essentially use our product to discover that customers are having different conversations. So it's been very helpful for me and for our team, of course, to, to use our product to discover how to build our, our own company.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely like always continuously challenging your own internal biases is a mm-hmm. skill that takes I don't think you can ever really be mastered, but it's always good to be <laughs> conscious of.
1: We drink the Kool-Aid, right? We have to have this blind belief in what we're building and we just press forward at any cost. And again, in some areas, that's such a powerful thing. And in other areas, that can be to our detriment.
0: Absolutely. Cool. So uh, obviously I mentioned in the beginning of the, the intro that you started out your career in marketing uh, and then you made this switch over. Like, How did you make the transition? What was the catalyst
1: Sure. The decision was essentially forced, but in a good way. And I've had this wonderful career in CS and I've learned so much. It's been amazing to be in a field that still feels nascent, that's growing. I feel like I've been here since the beginning and to see it grow and see such an interest in CS today is really, it's a very cool thing to be a part of. We have a really tight community of CSMs or practitioners and leaders. And for me, when I was building uh, my Senka company or the company before Koala called PromoBox, you mentioned we're a marketing technology platform. I had intended to lead our go-to-market efforts, specifically marketing. And then we signed our very first customer, Chevrolet, for their Super Bowl campaign in 2012. And we were faced with this fact that we had sold a product that was very early that wasn't exactly, an early stage founders understand this, founding teams understand this, it was a product that wasn't fully realized just yet. So we needed someone at the time, and then we grew that, that myself and my role into a whole team of people, but at that time, we needed someone to be the product, to essentially operate as the product and until we were able to build one that our customer could log in and experience and build campaigns themselves. So I remember my co-founder um, and CEO of Koala. we're sitting, we're having the conversation and realizing this, and we're both like pointing at each other, like who should do this work? And he's, you should do this work. And I'm like, oh my gosh, but I'm a marketer. I'm not a customer service person or customer support. And, and in the end, we just, you have to do what you have to do. And I ended up Loving that role. I mentioned earlier, I've been able to apply some marketing principles to CS and it's been my journey for the last 12 years now. So I'm hugely grateful. Thank you, Chevrolet.
0: Explain to me a little bit of what that must have been like as well, like going like with your marketing mindset, coming into customer success, like mm-hmm. what is one initial thing that you did and you believe you did really well? And what is one oh. like big mistake that you made, like going into it from a first-timers uh, perspective?
1: Yeah. Oh, I, I love this question. So I think the first thing that we did really is that we held so closely to our customers. We worked so closely with them. And I mentioned customers, but at the time in the very beginning was just Chevrolet. And for a young company, just beginning, you only have your reputation and you need your early customers and your team members to be a source or a bullhorn for the cause to tell other people that they loved working with you. And in the midst of not having a product that that we felt was fully operational it was important that we sold our team and our technology as the product and i feel like we did that really well so we included tech and team as product and then we also worked so closely with them day in and day out we were able to do that because they were essentially an enterprise level customer but honestly even if they were small that would have been important it's it was a catalyst for how we decided to grow Our offering was as a result of their timely feedback and they became partners alongside us. We jokingly named some of our features after some of our connections and contacts at Chevrolet. We brought them in a part of the process and we were able to create an environment where they felt like they were building the technology alongside us. And that was a wonderful experience to go through. And on the other side, of course, at the risk of saying anything good that you do can be a double-edged sword. Of course, when you spend that much, when you're that close with the customer, they expect that day in and day out, year in and year out, essentially for the rest of your time together. And they're still a customer of of PromoBox today. But at the risk of being a, a little bit too duplicative in my answer, I will say something that we didn't do very well was that... Because we built a customer success team from the very beginning, and I would recommend that any company thinks about building this frontline infrastructure from the get-go, leverage that team to a degree where they would actually cover over some of the inherent product gaps and issues that we had in a way that can be detrimental. So. When you invite a team in to be part of the product and that team is sort of bridging the gap between what you have and don't have, they can give you an edge in the market. But if you're not able to quickly iterate from a product perspective and you don't continue to listen to your customers, keep your ear to the ground, you will start to build or start to fall back on a product that the gap widens and widens as the customer success team continues to fill that gap. So I would recommend to leaders, build these teams from the get-go but iterate very quickly from a product perspective. And please listen to them. They they have key insights and a competitive edge on how to build your technology from a product, excuse me, from a customer acceptance aspect.
0: It's very interesting. Uh, and I think just thinking through as well, you're talking that in the beginning saying, okay, we have this big customer now, I'm doing marketing, I need to switch to customer success. Like, what did that look like as well? Did you just like mm. drop marketing side and just purely focus on mm. CS? Did you start building a team in parallel? And let me start there and then I have a few other following questions. Sure. That. Yeah.
1: sure. So for any early stage founders out there, I think you we well know that so many things happen in, in parallel. And even if you debutize a new role and I think, okay, now I'm focused on customer success. The reality of the fact is that you are really all things to all people. And um, that can be difficult, which is why focus is so important, but yet you have to hold to that focus loosely. I I think the key or the the magic to why it worked relatively well at Promobox is that my co-founders and I had very clear swim lanes. Even though I was bifurcated between customer success and marketing, my co-founder and CEO was very clearly operations and big picture selling. And then we had a technical co-founder that was very clearly a UX wizard, and then I had another a technical co-founder that was very clearly engineering. And so we all knew what our little fiefdoms and what our swim lanes were, which helped us focus, even if within that swim lane, there was a lot going on. So for me, I still helped manage the our website, our social properties. I did begin to harness an amazing, we call our Island and Misfit toy consultants. They were best in breed individuals that helped us with PPC and different components. And I was able to see what the strategy should look like, but not necessarily be in the trenches building those strategies. And the majority of my work then moved to CS. I would say that I was probably 15% in the marketing bucket and the rest was in customer success because I saw having happy customers as our most powerful marketing tactic. Um, if we could build amazing experiences and then just give them easy ways to talk about those experiences, that essentially is the marketing that we would need to power us through the first you know, few years. And, and that's what we're able to do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I can't remember where I read this as well. I think it's definitely from a VC, but I'm not sure who it is now. I think it's essentially was basically that at some point at any given like Lifespan of a SaaS business. If you're doing really well, at least 40% of new business comes from where, and it comes from like those happy customers, from those connections. And I definitely see like where you're coming from in terms of the best marketing you can do, just happy customers talking about your product and going out there from that side. The one thing I'm interested in as well is like, in depends as well on, on the type of customers in the segment you're going after. So I think typically if your business is predominantly SMB and you're a sort of low touch tech touch business, there's quite a lot of overlap between marketing and customer success in terms of the functions like lifecycle marketing and onboarding and these sorts of things that they share similarities because they're very much tech side they're driven by email and and this sort of thing in your case did you see any like good overlaps between the two where you would have sort of skill sets that you would maybe would have been used within marketing but would also like became very valuable uh, on the customer success side is anything specific that you see from that side yeah,
1: I think it's such a good point. I love what we're now noticing or what we've, I feel like I've started hearing maybe two-ish years ago is the customer marketing manager or customer marketing strategist. And yeah, I feel like it's incredibly smart to look at your wide breadth of customer work and then decide how to turn that into marketing in a way that the narrative is close to your customers, the vernacular is such that your customers are using and the language makes sense. So I love that here at Koala, we are already building our product marketing team. And so we're pretty early and the product marketing team is coming from sales NCS. And we're doing that strategically as a way to, again, keep the same vernacular and stay close to the customer. We know exactly how to talk to them and they feel like we understand them. So I, I think that it's very powerful to recruit within the customer success team and to other teams because they take that intelligence with them uh, and can use that to help create great fodder from a marketing perspective and uh, help build, or I should say, make strategic decisions that are helpful to the customer base.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting doing that internal recruiting. I definitely see as well where you come from in terms of from a product marketer's perspective, like nobody knows the voice of customer better than people speaking to the customers continuously. So coming in with that domain expertise and having that, existing history as well within the company can be very powerful, especially when like working on things like copy and positioning.
1: I think just to interject here, it is difficult for leaders within the company to decide how much of their time effort is going to be focused on the vision that they have for what they're building and what's future-proofing the business and what should be allocated towards what customers are asking for today that's either bridging the gap for what they sold versus what they offer or just general maintenance on growing with the community that they're serving. And it can be really difficult to make those decisions of what's what's going to be focused on vision and what's going to be focused on where my customers are driving us. So hopefully here at Koala, we're building something that helps leaders focus their time and effort so they know what are those big hits that are going to be meaningful within their business so that they can still allocate a significant amount of their time to the vision that they're creating with this exciting new offering that they're building.
0: For sure. And it's always like a, a slippery slope of going too heavy mm-hmm. on one side versus, yeah. Cool. So I'm interested as well then, like maybe either at Box or now at Quala, like when it comes to churn retention yourself, do you have any sort of interesting story that you could share with us? Anything like where you've uh, seen churn like really effectively handled or?
1: Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, sure. I mean, the escalation experience, I think is so near and dear to many of our hearts. And I think it's managed very closely by leaders within in the business. As far as interesting churn stories, uh, for me, it was the realization, and it was the realization of how much, especially in working with enterprise level customers, the relationship impacts how our customers feel about the work that we do with them and the products that they're being provided. Uh, and. Again, for those of us that working with named accounts, and to be clear, at Promobox and at Koala, we work with teams that are enterprise focused, and we also work with the long tail SMB as well. So I understand the double-sided marketplace. I understand what it's like for named accounts and for tech touch smaller accounts. The churn experience that I've had in the past, for instance, at Promobox, we churned a customer, a very large Volkswagen, and they were a loved customer of ours they had amazing engagement rates as far as usage goes on our platform they were doing so well this actually happened in automotive twice to us and we were we had a fair amount of automotive brands that we worked with and in certain industries particularly, particularly again with enterprise level customers there's a lot of politicking that's happening in the background and a lot of your ability to retain a customer is based on that relationship and not just based on the tech. So even though they were using our products, they loved it. They were seeing amazing engagement rates. They churned. They actually launched a campaign on our product the day before they churned. And it was such a blow to our team. It was so frustrating. We looked back, we did our due diligence. We're interviewing everyone, deciding in an exit strategy, what happened here? How do we take this forward into the next, to the next cycle? And discovered that even though they were again, using our products and services and how they felt about that usage. Was not good. They felt like it actually took them too long to get done what they needed to do, even though they had dedicated the time. And they felt like our pricing was debilitating for their marketing budget. Uh, we didn't realize, but it had at the time taken up ninety percent of their budget, their marketing budget. This was specifically with a certain uh, group dealing with their dealership base. I want okay, to know. Yeah, I was going to say that second. Like a, we- a huge,
0: huge. <laughs> <budget> <laughs> let me clarify. Thing.
1: Let me clarify. It was it was a specific sector of the marketing yeah. budget. Um, with their U.S. team. It was a result of those conversations that we realized, okay, how do we quantify the relationship and the value that they're experiencing alongside and marry that with usage and then deployed a a team that was focused on marrying the relationship component with the usage component so that we could understand from qualitative and from a qualitative and quantitative perspective customers that looked like Volkswagen moving forward. That was a tough lesson to learn. I think many of us in CS sometimes just out of pure, I guess, simplification, try to index on one certain group of metrics. Sometimes that's indexing on usage just as a proxy, but in reality, it's a lot more than just usage that keeps a customer.
0: Yeah, for sure. And sometimes, like you said, the metrics can also be deceiving in their own right, in the sense that you can see somebody looks extremely engaged, but maybe it's just they're not understanding what they need to be doing in the product, or they're just finding something incredibly frustrating. It's definitely something we talk about a lot as well, like the relationships and churn risk when it comes uh, to churn. I think it's probably top three reasons for churn, uh, like over listening to the show and all the different guests. Is that the relationship risk, especially like when your customer champion churns mm. or you don't have the right person within the organization. And like you say, there's a lot of politics going on. If you don't have that like real champion for your business internally, who's the one at the end of the day fighting to get like on the budget and uh, get things approved and things like that, it becomes a huge risk for churn and, and retention uh, at the end of the day. Ask, I want to ask you a question. i ask every guest uh, that joins the show. Let's imagine a hypothetical scenario that you join a new company Channel retention is not doing good at this company. And uh, the CEO comes to you and says, we really need to turn things around. We have three months to do it. You're in charge. What do you do? But there's a catch. The catch is that you're not going to tell me, I'm going to go and speak to customers, figure out what the biggest pain point is and start with that. That's what everyone would do. You're just going to pick something that you've seen being effective in the past and run blindly with it, hoping that it's going to work at this company. What would that one thing be?
1: My goodness. I feel like I have an answer that you you won't like because it's akin to the unacceptable one. My my actual thought was that I would talk to those in the trenches. I feel like there is a wealth of We know there's a wealth of intelligence for those that are the ones talking to customers. And a lot of times, because it's difficult to get that, extract that data out and really normalize it across CSMs, we sometimes bypass that data source. So the first thing I would do is actually have customer conversations with CSMs. And ask them how they feel about customers. Where are they seeing risk in the business and what do they think should be the top three things that we do, you know, out of the first 90 days of this experience. So is that a cop-out? Is that still akin to your customer? Let me try to, let me try to uh, dream up something else then. The other thing that I would recommend uh, is to document the customer lifecycle or the customer experience. I... It's another proxy for attempting to get close to customers if conversations are off limits. Let's say with customers and with CSMs, they're off limits. What I would do is actually take a look at what is the typical customer journey and how does our product fail or not fail within that journey? And then decide from there, what are the specific areas that we could optimize around based on the holes? And you don't, You can do that without customer input. You can actually do that with just product teams because product teams are also really aware of where those gaps are too. So documenting the customer lifecycle, I like to do that at least once a quarter because there's always fresh insights as a result of what we think the journey is versus what it actually is.
0: It's very interesting exercise. I think definitely to do. And sure, I'm pretty sure like you uncover quite a lot of things as you go through it, just really empathizing and putting yourself in your customer's shoes as well. Is something that needs to be done uh, continuously. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Last question then. What's one thing that you know today about general retention that you wish you knew when you got started with your career?
1: Oh, general retention that I wish I would have known. So I, I think my offering here would be that many of us spend way too much time trying to save deals that are already lost. The amount of emotional energy, effort, and time that goes into attempting to rescue or really rehabilitate a customer that essentially has already made a decision can be debilitating on not only executive teams, but also those in the trenches, the CSMs themselves. I now Give myself and the team permission to recognize when we haven't delivered or on a promise that we wanted to, or when a customer just wasn't a good fit to amicably part ways and even help them find a vendor that will serve their needs. I save a lot of time and effort just making that call and having a conversation, a nice amicable conversation, and then moving on and focusing on the best customers that are using the technology and loving it and turning those experiences into experiences that can help other customers do better. Maybe the ones that are in the middle that are slightly yellow. So that's what I, I would say. In my early career, I spent a lot of time trying to rehabilitate lost customers and it was it's very difficult. And I wish I would have reallocated that time to ones that were doing well and seeing how I could build other ones up into our best customers
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense and i think it's something that only comes with experience like really feeling that pain trying to save uh, the unsavable and then instead like losing your time and energy when it could be better spent uh, elsewhere very cool is there any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with is anything they should be aware of from your work uh, before we close off today
1: I would say, I would love to, to chat with anyone that's interested. You can find me on LinkedIn forward slash SunCRA. I'm happy to send the URL and you can link it up in show notes um, or yeah. SunCRA uh, at koala.io. I know it's a bit of a beast to spell. It's S-O-N-C-I-A-R-Y. And I know we're getting closer to uh, the end of the year. So I would say good luck and have fun to everyone out there. I know this can be a incredibly, I guess, a, a, a time where we're all just in the trenches trying to get everything done. So I hope that everyone takes a little bit of time to, to relax and restore and just get ready for 2022. I think it's going to be an exciting year for all of us.
0: Absolutely. But yeah, definitely we'll make sure to add all of that in the show notes uh, for the listeners. If you're listening, you can check that out as well. And uh, just thanks so much for joining today, Sincere. It was a pleasure chatting to you and wish you best of luck now going into the new year.
1: Thank you so much, Andrew. You too. Thanks for having me.
0: Cheers. Bye bye. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to Andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.